Let's open up in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 now. Ephesians chapter 2. We started studying the book of Ephesians back in September, and uh, we studied it for about three and a half months, thir 13 weeks, 13 or 14 weeks, and then we took a little break for Christmas and all that stuff, and then our How to Study the Bible series. So now we're going to pick it back up in Ephesians. We're going to, uh, Lord willing, study the whole book of Ephesians together, and I haven't set any sort of cadence for this or, or done any sort of outline. We're just going to kind of take it as it goes. So there might be days where we cover a lot of ground. There might be days where we cover very little ground. Uh, we'll just see how it goes, but I think this is going to be a rich time, a wonderful experience for our church. If you're just joining us here at Reality and you missed the first part of our study, in chapter one. That's all available online for free. You can go to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast. You can get all that stuff for free, uh, but wonderful stuff in the first part of Ephesians. So I'd like for you to get that. It's all about the fact that before God even made the world, he loved us and he chose us in Christ to be blameless and without fault in his eyes. And the fact that he adopted us into his own family through Christ and that that is something God wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. And so we spent about 13 weeks studying that fact, uh, and it's rich and it's important. So if you didn't hear that, get that. And we'll be picking it up in Ephesians chapter 1 today at some point. The title of this message is Spiritually Supporting Each Other. Spiritually Supporting Each Other. We'll be looking at just verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1. Uh, we'll be cutting it off mid-sentence if you're looking at the New Living Translation, but it doesn't matter because in the Greek, verses 15 through 23 is one long sentence, as was verses 3 through 14. In the Greek, that was one long sentence. It took us 13 weeks to study a single sentence uh, there in the Greek. So the English translation helps us out by breaking it up, and we'll break it up a little bit today. Paul writes in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1 to the church in Ephesus and says, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I've not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. Let's pray. Lord, that's a, that's a beautiful little part of a sentence there. We thank you for the heart that you put in Paul. Paul was a man so radically touched by your grace. Thank you that you, Jesus, were the source and the center of all of his joy and self-understanding and peace. And we pray the same for us, that Jesus, you would ever increasingly become the source and the center of our joy, our peace, that all of our hope would be in you, all of our identity would be in you and the fact that you love us and gave yourself for us and have redeemed us and you now call us holy and blameless in your sight because we've been forgiven. Lord, don't let the amazing things of your word be lost on us. We believe that your word is living and active. We believe that it's true in every word, that it's inerrant and infallible. We believe that your Holy Spirit working through your holy word changes our lives and changes our cities and changes the world. And so don't let our puny little hearts and minds get in the way of such a grand, wonderful thing as your spirit working through your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd please anoint me to communicate your truth in a way that brings much glory to Jesus and does well to further your purposes in the world and is a joy and a benefit to the church. So Lord, I don't want to get in the way. I want to get out of the way. Please anoint me for that and anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to respond. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of prefatory notes as we pick it back up in Ephesians after some time off. Ephesians throughout Christian history has been considered one of the most influential New Testament books within Christianity. Really one of those defining benchmarks for Christianity and Christian understanding. Uh, may, maybe the books that have influenced Christian thought more would be uh, the Psalms, uh, the Gospel of John, and the Book of Romans, perhaps. But other than those, the book of Ephesians stands alone as one of the most influential pieces of Christian scripture. But it's shorter than the Psalms, isn't it? Shorter than the book of John, shorter than Romans. It's punchy and it's pungent. It's tight and it's fast. It's potent. 
It's a concise work about Christ and the gospel, about life with in and through God's Spirit, and about the right way to live before God in the world with one another. And though it's short and punchy, we'll take some time to study it because it's rich. It's rich, so we'll take some time. And of course, the book is about Jesus. The whole of the book, the Bible, is about Jesus. And every book in the Bible is about Jesus. Jesus said so himself. And though the book is about Jesus, it's also about us in some very profound ways. Listen to what Kyle Snodgrass, wonderful last name there, (laughs) says. He, He says about Ephesians, it is about us. It describes human beings, their predicament, sin, and delusion. But much more, it describes God's reaching out to people to recreate and transform them into a new society, the church. Most of the letter is about two subjects, power and identity. It describes the power God's Spirit gives for living. It shows who we really are without Christ and who we become both individually and corporately with Christ. It's about how we understand ourselves and how we can get along with each other and God. So hence, it is one of the most important documents in the New Testament for understanding and being the church. Okay, I believe we're in a a pivotal time, a pivotal season here as reality. And and this piece of scripture is really going to help us in our understanding of what it means to be the church. It'll help us in our understanding of Christ and his supremacy over and in the church. It'll help us navigate our way through the reality of doing life together as members of the church. It's going to help us further understand and practice our interconnectedness that we have in Christ. Ephesians goes a long way in instructing us how to be faithful as a church. It tells us who we are, who God is, and what we ought to do. And so hence the artwork for the series. This picture of Christ is really pictures of all of you guys. This is thousands of pictures of all of you from reality from all three of our campuses. And the reason that we did this is because Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, helps us to see ourselves in Christ. The strong theme of chapter 1 that we studied thus far was our position in Christ because of God's love. It helps us to see ourselves in Christ. And so our artist thought that he would give us a a visual reality of seeing ourselves in Christ. But not only seeing ourselves in Christ, but seeing ourselves as interconnected with one another because we're all in Christ. And so we've got this. You're all in there. You can go and look at your little face and find yourself and your loved ones. It's at all three campuses. We've got another copy up on the uh, patio here at Reality Santa Barbara. But, but it's a powerful image of this fact. That Christians are together in Christ and so radically in con- interconnected with one another. And Ephesians helps us to realize that and navigate that. Now, Paul had planted this church in Ephesus some years earlier. He spent over two years in the, in the uh, city of Ephesus, ministering there and getting this church started and raising up leaders. He had a deep emotional connection to them. You can read about his connection with the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 and in Acts chapter 20. You could see his farewell address to the elders at the church in Ephesus where they wept and he wept when Paul was departing. There's just a deep connectivity and, and love and investment that he had with this church. And now it's sometime, some years later, and Paul is in prison. We read that in the last couple of verses of the last chapter of the book. Paul's in prison, and he's writing to the church in Ephesians. Many of them he would have known from his two plus years there. Many of them he would not have known as the church had grown there, and it certainly would have gone beyond a single congregation to many congregations throughout the city. But even though he doesn't know them all, and even though he's been absent for some time, and even though he's in prison, he's been hearing reports about the church in Ephesus. And the reports have been good. His ears in prison are hearing sweet things about the condition of the church in Ephesus, about the Ephesians. And it causes him to give thanks to God. And that's what we're reading in verses 15 and 16. He says, ever since I heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus... 
and your love for God's people everywhere. I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. Now, it's not that this was uncommon for Paul to give thanks for uh, various churches that he interacted with. He does it in pretty much all of his letters that he's writing to. He thanks God for some particular aspect of the life of that church in his prayers. In fact, no matter how bad the church was, and usually churches that Paul was writing to had some pretty big problems. What we have in the epistles, the letters of Paul, are what we call situational theology. He was writing to them. He was disclosing them to theology because there were certain difficult situations that they were trying to navigate. And so he, as an apostle, as a spiritual father, was trying to help them navigate. And so when difficulties would arise, he, he would write them. And he, no matter how difficult things were, he would always find something positive to say. And you thank God for that. One exception, Galatians. The church in Galatia didn't thank God for them at all. But you'll remember from our study of the book of Galatians. It was because their issue was an issue of the gospel. They were abandoning the gospel of God. They were backsliding, they, they were rebelling, they were defecting to a gospel of works rather than a gospel of grace. Paul was incensed about it. It was a dangerous situation in the church, and so he had no words of thanks for them. But for everybody else, he found some way to thank God. For the church in Rome, uh, he thanked God for their faith having been proclaimed throughout the world. It was a big deal that the gospel had gone to Rome and that the church was flourishing there in Rome, the center of the then known world. The church in Corinth was a horrific mess. If you haven't read Corinthians lately, you ought, you ought to read it. They were a horrific meth, mess, and yet uh, he thanks God for his grace given them. I guess when someone's life is so messy, that's all you can thank God for is grace. <laughs> the church in Philippi, they were an active church, and he thanked God for their participation in the spread of the gospel. The church in Colossae, the Colossians, he thanked God uh, for the same thing he's thanking God for the church in Ephesians, their faith in Jesus and their love for all of God's people. The church in Thessalonica for their faithful work, loving deeds, and enduring hope. Second Thessalonians, his next letter to them, because their faith was flourishing and their love for one another was growing. And here he gives his heartfelt thanks, similar to some of the other churches, but true for the church in Ephesus for their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for God's people everywhere. They had this strong, flourishing faith, trust, hope in Christ, and this love for all of God's people. Faith, love, and hope are the trilogy of the New Testament. They emerge throughout the epistles. You'll remember from 1 Corinthians 13 at the end of it. Now these three things remain. Faith, love, and hope. But the greatest of these is love. Faith, love, and hope form sort of the bedrock of Christian understanding along with grace and truth. If you want to take five words that form the, the bedrock of a Christian understanding, doctrine, and New Testament, faith, love, and hope, grace, and truth. And these paired together that he mentions here, faith and love, make for true and faithful Christianity. Fruitful and vibrant Christian experience in relationships and worship. That's why he says, gosh, I, I'm not stopping to thank God. That you've got this strong faith and this real love for all of people. So what sort of faith is he referring to here in Ephesians? He's not talking about saving faith, right? We're saved by grace through faith, but that's not necessarily what he's referring to, though that's obviously important. They were already saved. But he's talking about their strong faith for daily living, a continued trust in Jesus Christ. To have faith, biblically speaking, is not to just believe, it's to put your trust in. It's to lean on. It's to hope in. They've got this strong hope and trust leaning on Jesus Christ. Brian Chappelle in his commentary defines it this way. Relying on God's provision and living for his glory in the midst of a sinful and self-serving culture. There's a, a cool little definition, definition of strong faith in Jesus Christ. Relying on his provision and living for his glory in the midst of a sinful and self-serving culture. The city of Ephesus was a lot like our area. It was a lot like Santa Barbara. Coastal town, a lot like Carpinteria and Ventura. Coastal town, degree of affluence, 
some important commerce in the area, and strong pagan influence. Our area here, the coastlands between Ventura and Santa Barbara, strong pagan influence much like that. And so this is a powerful thing, this strong faith, relying on Christ's provision and living for his glory in the midst of a sinful and self-serving culture. And living with faith in Jesus like that, the way that he's describing, is a daily challenge. It's not easy. It's difficult. When our own sort of um, passions compete with Christ's passion, when our own wants and desires are competing with him, when the loud message of culture is live for yourself and your own glory and secure yours and get yours and compete and compare. And the message of Christ and faith in Christ is just contrary to that. It's about him and his glory and finding all of our identity in him and the love of God, not how we rate among other people. And so it's a challenge to have that sort of trust, this trusting for every aspect of our life. This sort of faith that he's talking about has to do with our standing before God, right? A strong faith in Jesus for our standing before God. I, I don't feel good about my standing before God because I behave well. I feel good about my standing before God because Christ has done well on my behalf on the cross, right? This sort of strong faith is talking about our understanding of self, I don't see myself as awesome. I see myself as a broken sinner, but who's been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and is now called holy and beloved. Yeah. Right? The strong faith has to do with dealing with life. I don't look at God through the lens of the difficulties of life. I look at the difficulties of life through the lens of God. That God is much bigger than the circumstances in this life. This strong faith has to do with dealing with people. I don't look for my security and my self-worth and, and approval from people. I get all of that from Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. So that now, because of my strong faith in him, I can just ease up a little bit with people. See, a strong faith that he's referring to has everything to do with all the aspects of our life. And what this strong faith in Jesus Christ does is yields a real love for other Christians. There's this connectivity. You got a strong faith in Jesus Christ, this sort of faith that we're talking about that affects your life in this way. You're standing before God, you're self-understanding, dealing with life, dealing with people. Then you're gonna have a genuine love for Christians. He says your love for God's people everywhere or all the saints as it's translated. So what sort of love is he talking about? It's cool that the book of Ephesians talks about love a lot. It talks about love more than any other New Testament book other than 1 John, which is like the love epistle from the love apostle, so it's not even fair, not even a contest. He was one who reclined on the bosom of Jesus, like just touchy-feely guy. And Corinthians, which Paul also wrote, but that's got the love chapter, which was, I'm sure, read at your wedding. So that's not fair either. But other than those, it's got more to say about love than any other New Testament book. But, but the verb to love, the action of loving, is mentioned more in the book of Ephesians than any other one in the New Testament. This idea of learning to love, actually loving, not some mushy ethereal thing, but putting feet and hands and action to love is really the stuff of the book of Ephesians. And the sort of love that is mentioned here, that's mentioned here, is agape love. That's the word that he uses, agape. And there's millions of things we could say about that, and we could preach lots of sermons about that. But here's a, a little definition. It's a thoughtful, volitional, purposeful love that wills to love even the unlovely. It's the very love of God himself. You see, that, that's part and parcel to the gospel, is that in our sin, in the eyes of God, we are altogether unlovely and unlovable. So that if God is going to love us, it has to be a quality within himself that causes him to do so, not a quality within us. You understand that? So that God loves us not because of us. God loves us in spite of us. This is why it's called good news. This is why it's called the gospel of grace. Not your merit or anything you deserve or any quality inherent in yourself. And, and so that, that's the sort of love that God has for us, this agape love, this willful, thoughtful, volitional, purposeful love that loves 
even the unlovely. This is the kind of love that Paul was saying the church in Ephesus was famous for. They were known for loving the unlovely. Loving Christians, it weren't always easy to love. Purposeful. It wasn't just a mushy feeling, right? It, it wasn't responsive. I love you because you do this, and I love you because you look that way, and I love you because I feel this way. It was grounded in something deeper, something more wonderful. It had to do with the love of God in Christ. It was the outflow of their strong faith in Christ that they put all their trust and hope in Christ for the relationship with God, standing before God, self-understanding, and interaction with one another. And so it yields this deeper, truer thing called agape love. And what's cool about their love is it wasn't confined to their immediate circles. You know, it wasn't like they, they just loved each other. They just had this little love circle in church. But it, but it was broad. Their love for God's people everywhere. All the saints. They just had this willful, meaningful, purposeful, deep, active love for all Christians. I came across this quote this week. It says, a person wrapped up in his or herself makes a very small package. It was obvious for them that their Christian experience wasn't egocentric. It hadn't declined to be being just about themselves. It was much bigger than themselves. Man, Christianity is good when it becomes more than about just you. It was about, it was about more than themselves. They loved God's people everywhere. Paul here is specifically referring to their love for God's people, the saints. But that doesn't preclude love for non-Christians. He's not just saying, oh, you should just love Christians. That's, that's not what's being said, right? We're, we're called to love our neighbors, whether they're Christians or not. We're called to love our enemies, whether they're Christians or not. And God so loved the world, the whole world. God loves people that aren't Christians, they're not going to be saved and born again and go to heaven unless they put their faith and their hope in Jesus Christ. But he loves them. God proved his love for non-Christians in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so if God loves the whole world, everybody, even the most wicked, then that call is also upon the Christian. We understand that. We're not just supposed to have this little love circle, Christian love circle, everyone's excluded. But... There is to be the special love among Christians. See, Ephesians is largely, largely about, as I said before, our connection with Christ, and so our interconnected, connected, connected, interconnected, interconnectedness with one another. And you cannot escape the emphasis in the New Testament upon loving each other as Christians because of our interconnectedness through Christ. Jesus said this in John 13. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Talking to Christians. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. In some way, our love for one another as Christians should, should, should be demonstrative of our connectedness to Christ to the world. It has to do with our witness. It should almost provoke a sort of jealousy in them. Man, these Christians love each other so much. I, I want to be a part of that gig. Like, that looks attractive to me. That's what should be going on. Right? It's like Jesus should look attractive by the way that we love each other. The world should look and go like, Dude, if that's Jesus stuff, I want Jesus stuff. Like, that's fat, juicy, greasy, good love. Like, I, I want some of that action. And so, because Jesus would say that, the New Testament would reverberate that. And Galatians 6, for example, would say, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. We should be working hard to do good to and for other Christians. Again, it's not just this mushy thing. It's based on the lordship of Jesus and a strong faith in Jesus. 
Now, the New Testament would take it further. It wouldn't just exhort us and say, come on, guys, love one another, sing kumbaya. It wouldn't just exhort us. It, it, would, it, it would actually make our love for one another the litmus test for true conversion. Right, First John, the love epistle says this. If we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. The New Testament just says it's evidential that you've been born again by the Spirit of God, by repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. It's evidential that you are a new creation if you love your Christian brothers and sisters. If you don't love your Christian brothers and sisters, probably not saved. This starts to get scary for me. Loving other Christians is not a suggestion, it's a commandment. But in the New Testament, every commandment has an enablement. Every imperative has an indicative, right? So let's turn to 1 John real quick. Keep your little fingers here in Ephesians. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. And we'll see that though loving other Christians is this commandment. It's not this abstract, standalone commandment. It's this commandment that's attached to this enablement. It's this imperative connected to this indicative, this command to do connected to this wonderful statement of fact of what we have in Christ from God. So 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Again, the love apostle here says, Dear friends, 1 John 4, 7. Let us continue to love one another. For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Okay, she's talking about, just one, one moment there. It's not talking about like how you love your dog or how you love your boyfriend or how much you love Mexican food or surfing. It's not talking about that kind of love. Everyone's got that kind of love. It's talking about love between Christians, okay? Verse 9, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. You see, it's not this abstract thing where God's just sitting up there going, love one another. Like I tell my kids all the time, you get along right now. Be nice to your sister. Right? All the time I'm yelling that at my son. It's, it's, it's not that sort of thing. He's saying, listen, since we have experienced such a glorious love from God, in his son, Jesus Christ. Since we've been touched and changed and saved by this love. Since it's true and experiential. Since we are the beloved of God. Surely we ought to love one another. Christ is always putting things like this before us. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Love as you have been loved. The things that happen to us by faith in Jesus Christ ought to happen to those around us by expression of his spirit working in us. Ever since I heard of your strong faith in Jesus Christ and your love for all of God's people, the work that God is doing in us is always going to have this outward manifestation into the lives of people around us. That's the way that this thing works. And yet we struggle with it, don't we? Even in this room. There's people there sitting on that side of the room because they know so-and-so's on that side. Right? That, that, that's true. And, and between churches, it's, it's just sometimes hard to love other people, even other Christians. And, and so if, if, that's, if, if that's difficult for us in this moment, the answer is, is to get your eyes back on Jesus. To just become more and more enamored with the way that God loves you in Christ. That's, that's the only way to start to love people more. See, you said there, love is from God. You're not called to conjure this up on your own. 
It's not like God says, you better love each other and you just better figure it out and make it happen. That, that's called religion. That's what we were saved from. It's not what he says. He says, you have been loved by God the Father. And then Paul would write in Romans, and the Holy Spirit of God pours the love of the Father into our hearts. And then John would say, now pour this love into one another. And if there's a lack of love, if it's difficult to love, as it often is, I know, I, I know. If it's hard to love, then, 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 then meditate on, think upon the love of God in Christ for you. Become more and more enamored with that. Give yourself more to that truth that God loves you so radically that he gave his son. And this will, by the Holy Spirit, begin to enable you to love others in this agape way, right? This, this, this purposeful, selfless way of loving even those who are unlovely. That, that was the substance of that concert vision that I shared last week, right? That there's some, some snittiness and some backbiting and some slandering and some, some division going on within our body because Jesus isn't quite on center stage, Right? So, so, so if, if there's these little things going on in the body that are starting to divide us and, and just aren't, aren't cool, then let's just make it more about Jesus Amen. as a manifestation of God's love. And things will start to get right between us. Now, of course, we, we sometimes find it easy to love certain Christians, but it's never easy to love all Christians, evidenced by the fact that there are 38,000 Christian denominations. What? I can name like three. There's 38,000? That's just creepy. But we, 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 find it, we find it difficult within Christianity sometimes to truly love, to truly love Christians who have other doctrinal perspectives, value other things in different ways, who have different styles and emphases in their church and different church cultures. Jonathan Swift died in 1745, Irish author, satirist, and clergyman who wrote Gulliver's Travels. Said, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. R. Kent Hughes says, our surface Christianity arms us with what we think are proper prejudices and a rationale for criticizing those who fall short, keeping them at arm's length. 38,000 Christian denominations. The world will know you by your love for one another. It's just, it's weird. I think it's the work of Satan, and I totally have been a victim of it from time to time, and I can get it. But sometimes within the body of Christ, like, the disdain for other Christians is, like, gnarly. I've been sort of experiencing some of this lately, like, people talking to me about other Christian leaders who have different doctrinal perspectives and emphasis and stuff, and they've, they've got like this disdain for them, like they're these evil, wicked people. And what the book of Ephesians would tell us is, hey, you are all together in Christ, who is the head. You are the connected body of Christ. You're interconnected with one another. You are brothers and sisters. And I'm like, dude, when people are like this about other Christian leaders and, and that antagonistic and, and, and hateful and spiteful toward them, I'm thinking, hey, man, there's like, there's witches in our city. Like Santa Barbara is world famous for witchcraft. There's witches in our city. And you're crying about that pastor? Like, dude, misdirected angst. Like, get it together. That, they're not the enemy. Like they might have some different doctrine and, and they're Calvinist and, you not, and you're not or, or they're Pentecostal and you're not or whatever, but like, dude, they're not the enemy. We have an enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Like we have an enemy. We are not the enemy. I'm tripping out on that. We're... I just got back from this... Uh, conference in Florida. I got back at midnight last night. I was speaking at a conference in Florida called the One Conference. Pastor G was with me and uh, was just over there for 24 hours teaching at this conference. And it was real eclectic, the speakers that they had. It was put on um, by 200 different churches in the city of Miami, about 6,000 people there. 
And it was in order to unite the churches in Miami to reach the city of Miami with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Super cool thing. And so because there were 200 churches represented, there was a real sort of eclectic mix of speakers. You know what I mean? So there, there's 14 speakers. I was number 10 on the schedule. So by the time they got to me, people were already exhausted. But you're in this room with, with all these other Christians and then all these other leaders and, and these speakers that you wouldn't normally be in the room with with some real strong doctrinal differences and, and approaches and styles. And dude, there was just a spirit of love and humility and generosity that it's all about Jesus. And like, you don't believe in the gifts? That's okay. It's all about Jesus. You're reformed in your soteriology. That's okay. It's all about Jesus. You're this, you're that. Wow, you're just kind of creepy. It's all about Jesus. <laughs> That's what they're saying about me. And, but there was, there was all this flack around it, you know, from other people in the body. Like, I can't believe you're going to that conference and that guy's going to be there. Like, as if I was going to dinner with Satan or something. Like, that's how Christians act sometimes. Like, I can't believe you interact with that guy. Like, he's the prince of darkness or something. And I'm like going surfing with him. Like, going surfing with the devil. Like, that. that's... That's how some Christians are acting. And I, I've, I've been that guy in the past. Like I've acted that way and I'm, I'm just like, that's just not what the Bible says we ought to be like. What binds us together in Christ is far greater than anything that threatens to tear us apart. Okay? If we're truly Christians. Like if it's all about Jesus as the only unique son of God, as the only way to heaven, Right? If it's all about Christ, we're, we're truly Christians. We're not, we're not messing up the core essentials. Then what binds us together is way greater than anything that tears to separate us, threatens to separate us. But we have a hard time with that, evidenced by the fact that there are 38,000 Christian denominations. Such a hard time, Jesus knew about it, that he prayed for us with regards to this. John chapter 20, please. And when you get to 20, go to 17, because that's what I meant to say. John 17. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. It's called the high priestly prayer. He's praying to the Father. Night before he's crucified, he's going to the cross, okay? This is like the last hurrah, this, this big prayer. So, so what he's praying right now is like super urgent upon his heart, like really, really important, the high priestly prayer. And we can't, don't have time to look at all of it. But John 17, Jesus praying the night before the cross, starting in verse 20. John 17, 20, Jesus prays to the Father, says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, the ones that were in front of him, right? The 11 at this point. But also for those who will ever believe in me through their message. He's praying for us. I pray that they will all be one. Just as you and I are one. As you are in me. Listen to that radical connectivity. I want Christians to be one in the same way, Father, that you and I are one. Like he grounds our unity in Trinitarian unity. It's gnarly. Thank you, Jesus. I, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I, Father, are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. Like the gospel message going forth, the difference between heaven and hell for people is in some way connected to the way that we love one another. That's just heavy. Verse 22, I've given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Wow. Dude, today, that's the heaviest passage I ever read. Today, for some, that's radical. That the world will know that you sent me. 
Like, is Jesus really the only unique Savior of the world? I don't know. Let me look at the way Christians love each other. Nope. Or is Jesus the only unique Savior of the world? I don't know. Let me look at Christians. Yeah. Like, that's what he's saying. It's going to be the effect. So heavy. That the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Like, the evidence of God's love in our life is the gracious love we have toward one another. That's what he just said. That they will know that you love them as much as you love me. Because we say that. Like, that's biblical truth. What's true about Jesus is in some ways true about us when we put our faith in him positionally before God. God loves you as much as he loves his son. That's a radical message to tell the world. And, and that will be esteemed, true or false by them, in the way that we love one another. Man, that's just heavy. So then, you know, as reality. I just have this, this burden for... for It'd be really cool if our church was known for what the church in Ephesus was known for. Strong faith in Jesus Christ and a love for all the saints. Man, that'd be good. So I, I want us to start to take on, and I, I'm going to finish right here. I'm not going to go as far as I, I wanted to go in the text today, and that's fine. We'll, we'll pick it up next week unless Jesus comes back. Please come back. I mean, right? Why not? Lord, please. I mean, don't get me wrong. Life is really good right now, and I'm enjoying it, and there's waves today. I'm going surfing after this, but still, please. Unless Jesus comes back, we'll pick it up next week, but I, I just want to finish on this point. Let's just, as reality, endeavor together to be humble and gracious and loving toward the whole body of Christ. Let's... Let's work on never talking bad about other churches. Never disparaging other Christian leaders. It doesn't mean that we won't be discerning about doctrine. We will be. We must be. It doesn't mean that we won't have some doctrinal perspectives and distinctives. We will. It doesn't mean we won't fight for doctrine. We will. But we will do it with love and charity. We will do it. Yeah, praise God. Because that's just, that's just what the Bible says. So it's, it's really, it's just um, so silly to, to argue about the Bible, but not like love each other the way the Bible says. To like just beat each other over the head and disparage each other and despise each other on doctrinal issues, but not get to the main thing, which is love. The greatest of these is love. So I, you know, we're a big church in the area, and we're well-known. Gee whiz, let, let's be known for loving and blessing other churches. Let's bless and love other churches in Jesus' name. Let's not boast about our church, okay, out in public. It's, it's fine to be happy about your church and say, yeah, I love my church and this church part of, and that, that's fine, but let's not compare, right? That's, 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 that's not what Christ has. I'm so tempted to go on in the text because it lends itself to this next part. <clears throat> okay, I, I don't think I'll regret it if I will. You might, but I don't think I'll regret it if I will. <laughs> so that, that's going to be a challenge for us. Okay, is reality. Let's commit to be kingdom people. There are um, these kind of Christians generally. There are local church people. They're just all about their church and hooray and hurrah and it's just our church. And then there's uh, party people or denomination people or tribe people. Like it's all about our denomination. It's all about our tribe, hooray, hurrah. And then there's kingdom people. Like it's all about the kingdom of God and the whole body of Christ. Let's be kingdom people. Right? Let's not be about reality. Let's not be about some tribe or tribes or denominations. Let's be kingdom people. Like let's love the body of Christ. Let's love the body of Christ. Let's pray for, let's bless other churches. Let's speak well of them. Let's give to them, encourage them. We've got to choose to do that in our hearts, right? Agape love is this, is this Holy Spirit-empowered choice. Let's agape love the whole body of Christ. Now, he's saying that they're doing well at that. He, he's commending them for that. But he'll go on to exhort them in that throughout the rest of the book. 
He'll challenge them in their love for one another. In chapter four, he'll say, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. This brings out the point that Paul was thanking God for them, for their love for one another, even though they weren't perfect in it. And this is, this is really important, and this is brief. He chose to deal with them according to grace and their identity in Christ, Christ's righteousness, rather than their shortcomings. The, his approach was who they are in Christ and what they're doing well, rather than what's happening in their flesh and what they're doing poorly at. Okay, it doesn't mean Paul's not going to ever deal with, his short, with their shortcomings. He certainly will. But it means that he chooses to rejoice in where they're doing well, even though it's imperfect. He's saying, gosh, I'm rejoicing in your love for all the saints. He's going to go on to deal with their lack of love and their difficulties in love. But he doesn't say, ah, you guys are doing okay. Let's talk about where you need to grow. He starts out with, I rejoice in the fact that because of your strong faith in God, you're loving people. And this is one of the ways that we can spiritually support each other as, as members of this church and as Christians as a whole. By rejoicing in and commending the fruit that we see in each other's lives. Right? This message was called spiritually supporting each other. Rejoicing in and commending the fruit that we see in each other's lives. None of us is perfect. But each one of us is in the process of being transformed by the Holy Spirit. What if we begin to identify the positive transformative work by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God happening in one another's lives and commend it? And just speak well, speak blessing, command what the Spirit of God is doing in us individually instead of always looking for the faults to criticize and to tear down and say, well, right? Commending even though we know there's growth that is needed. We, we need to learn to do that. We need to learn to do that. Learn to do that. We need to be purposeful about that because it doesn't take any special skill or work to find faults, right? That comes really easily to us. We like look at each other and we're like, mm. right? And I wasn't looking at anyone in particular. Okay, we like look at each other and we're like, Ugh. and we, we do that all the time. But that doesn't take any special skill or anointing by the Holy Spirit, but it does take work and, and blessing of the Holy Spirit to begin to look to see the positive fruit in people's lives by a work of grace in their lives for the glory of God. And then commend that. As uh, Brian Chappelle again says, he says, to see people robed in righteousness, not their own, and to encourage them on, the, on, that, on this basis to be more of what they should be powerfully communicates the heart of Christ. We provide spiritual support by commending others for the good we can see despite the growth they still need. That's how we can support each other. Help each other grow. Commend each other for the good we see despite the growth we still need. We need to learn to be and to say, I'm thankful for you. That's what Paul was saying to the church in Ephesus. I am constantly giving thanks to God for you. I am thankful for you. They were far from perfect. Okay, we'll see that when we get into the meat of the text. But he's saying, you guys are doing well in your faith and in your love for one another. I am so thankful for you. What if Christians just started speaking that well to each other? Hey, awesome faith. Way to go about loving people. I thank God for you. Has anybody ever spoke like that to you? Man, it's, it's, it's life-changing. Man, I'm, I have, I'm so thankful I have people in my life that speak to me that way. I got other people too. But I got some that speak that way. They say, you know what? I, I'm, so, I'm stoked on your faith in Christ, what he's doing in you. And I'm thankful for you. Gosh, that just changes everything. That's, that's, not, that's not fluffy, mushy stuff. That's Christ-centered, gospel-oriented, God-glorifying Christian love. Okay, that's, that's good. That's good, 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 good. And people can't grow in an environment where only their failings are seen and remembered. If all we do as a church of Jesus Christ is point out shortcomings, nobody's going to grow. Paul was rejoicing that they were doing well spiritually. And so I just want to encourage us as we end here to, to have that sort of attitude, to rejoice when others are doing well spiritually, to rejoice when others are blessed. I mean, honestly, oftentimes when others are doing well spiritually, we're jealous, aren't we? I was even this way at that conference I just talked about where I was, I was a 10th speaker. 
like, and there's one topic for the conference. So like everything that could have been said was already said before I got to the stage. You know what I mean? So when people were like ripping and just doing awesome by the anointing of God, there was that, that part of me in the Lord that was like, yes, praise God. Oh, edifying the body, glorifying Christ. Oh, yes. And then there's this other part that was like, oh, I hate you. Like, you're killing it right now. You're doing so good. I don't know if I could do that good. Aren't, aren't, aren't we kind of like that, or is it just me? <laughs> the truth is we're often jealous and displeased when others are doing well, even spiritually. That, that's nothing new. Listen, that's not merely a product of our culture, which is a culture of competition and comparison. It's not merely a product of culture. This is the ancient, ancient difficulty of humanity. It is a deep timeless human flaw. That is why Cain killed Abel. That's why Cain killed Abel. Displeased when Abel did well before God. St. John of the Cross, San Juan de la Cruz, who died in 1591, said this. He said, many experience displeasure when they see others in possession of spiritual goods. They feel sensibly hurt because others surpass them on this road and they resent it when others are praised. That's a big problem in humanity and in Christianity. Paul's attitude in the text today calls us upward. His heart, touched and transformed by the grace of God and the love of God in Christ, is to be emulated. Loving people commending them, rejoicing in them, and praying for them. And we'll get to praying for them next week. But that's how we spiritually support one another, loving each other, commending each other, rejoicing in each other, and praying for each other. So here's an assignment. This week, okay, choose one person or one church, okay? Not your own. One person or one church to tangibly love commend, rejoice in, and pray for. That's your assignment for the week. Non-negotiable. Choose, choose one person. And hopefully they're kind of hard to love so that this has, bears some fruit in your life. Soak yourself. Fill your heart and mind with the love of God in Christ. Ask for the Holy Spirit to pour the love of the Father into your heart. And then take that and tangibly love somebody commend them, rejoice over them, and pray for blessing in their life. That's, 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 that's Christianity. Lord, thank you for your grace for these things. Thank you for speaking to us today in your word. Gosh, Lord, we love your word because it leads us to you. We love you, Lord. And we just pray that your love for us would just become more and more real and transformative in us. I repent, we repent of our lack of love for all the saints. Repent to that, Lord, on behalf of your whole church and the whole world. We're just, gee whiz, we're blowing it on this one, Lord. Be merciful to us. Be gracious to us, God. Holy Spirit, come now in these moments where we endeavor to linger in your presence and exalt the name of Jesus and pour the love of the Father into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.